Today we're going to talk about the worst sin in the universe. Is that exciting? It's the mother of all other sins. Or should I, should I say the father of? How about the parent? You, you say, well, do we have to talk about that? Yes. It's one of the great advantages of, of working through a passage of Scripture, through books of the Bible, is it just forces us to talk about things, whether we want to talk about them or not. We've all committed this sin. In the first 17 verses of Romans, as we're going through a study of Romans, Paul has been talking about the gospel, the good news. Now he will talk about the bad news, the tragedy of the human condition. Why does Paul have to take us through such hard teaching about the human condition? Well, it's because superficial diagnoses result in superficial cures. So I think about my own situation. When I received the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease several years ago, I was told by the neurologist there is no cure. Now, he could have said, well, I want to be nice to you and, and not make it so hard so I can give you some hope that there's a cure. But he told me the truth, that there is no cure. Except the possibility of God healing, which he could do any time if he chooses. So superficial diagnosis gives you a superficial hope and cure. What Paul wants us to see why only the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, last week we were in that in verses 16 and 17, is because in it the saving righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so we see this in this, uh, in this passage that we're looking at today, verses 18 to 23. So turn with me to chapter 1 of Romans, verses 18 to 23, and we'll read that text. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So looking at verse 18, we come across the word for, and for takes us back to verse 17. So that Paul's thought flow is this. God's saving righteousness is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. And we really need God's saving righteousness for God's wrath is being revealed against people for their unrighteousness. Now, what is God's wrath? Well, it's his holy and righteous anger against what is unholy and unrighteous. 
Some people reject that God could have wrath because they relate it to human examples of people exploding in out-of-control rage, blowing their stack, going off in wild fury. Hopefully none of you, none of you had that kind of a morning. We've all experienced those sinful anger, haven't we, in our own lives. Some of us are more subtle about it. Some of us are more explosive with it. And we've experienced it in, the, in others' lives as well. Some of those experiences have been extreme and destructive. So when we read or hear about God's wrath, we may deny God could really have such wrath because we, we can't imagine him being that way, what our exposure has been to sinful expressions of anger. But uh, it says in Psalm 7:11, God is a righteous judge and therefore he is a God who feels indignation every day. Now, he's not only angry every day, thankfully, He's a God who is joyful and, and takes pleasure in things, and, but he's able to be all of that at the same time. You're angry every day at something, right? Something ticks you off about every day. Maybe you're mad now that you're having to listen to this sermon. But better get a reaction out of you than no reaction, so if you've got to be angry, be angry. Or we might believe God used to have a wrath in the old days. He had an anger problem. He got over it. In the Old Testament, he was an angry God. In the New Testament, he's a nicer, kinder God. There's that version of it. Or we believe he still does have wrath and we reject him. We say, I don't want anything to do with God if he's an angry God, if he gets angry at sin. But do you really want a wrathless God? Are there not things that we should be angry about and that God should be angry about? Shouldn't we be angry about human trafficking? Child abuse? Domestic violence? Crime? Identity theft? Terrorism? Underinflated footballs? Oh, sorry. Really angry about that one. I'm angry that every time you turn around, you're hearing about it. It is right to have truly righteous anger about evil and injustice, isn't it? In fact, it's wrong not to. God's wrath is perfectly holy and and upright. It is never out of control or in a senseless rage. It is his settled hatred and of and opposition to unrighteousness. And Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. How is God's wrath being revealed? In this context, what he's talking about is we see it in verses 24, 26, and 28. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Therefore God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Therefore God gave them up to do what is not right. God's wrath is, is being revealed in that he's giving people up in, in their sinful desires to more sin. Now, there are other expressions of God's just wrath and anger. The, the fact that there's death, the fact that there's disease and destruction in nature. But this is his focus in this passage. Is God right to reveal his wrath this way? He is because it's against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. 
The present ex experiences of God's wrath is, is merely a foretaste of what will come on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Paul says this in chapter 2, verse 5. So we just get a little taste of it now. The, the full expression of it is yet to come. He says he's, his wrath is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They suppress, that is, they, they hold down the truth like holding down a beach ball under the water. Have you ever tried to do that? It's just like holding it down. Oh, there it goes. Have you ever suppressed God's truth? This is, the church is a support group for that. We've been God's truth suppressors. And God saves us from that. And in verse 19, he talks about the truth that, that shows how well we are suppressing God's truth. And here's the truth they are suppressing in verse 19. He says, What can be known about God is plain to them. Why is it so plain to them? He says, Because God has shown it to them, made it known to them made it evident to them. So they're seeing the truth and they're holding it down, suppressing it. What has God shown to them? Well, in verse 20, for his invisible attributes have been clearly perceived. How can God's invisible attributes be clearly perceived if they're invisible? Well, God has designed the world and people that in the things he has made, and that phrase, the things he has made, is the Greek word there that's translated things he has made is poema. What does that sound like? Poem. The universe, creation, the world, is God's poem. It's his creative expression of who he is. So in other words, galaxies, giraffes, gorillas, goats, German shepherds, giant squid, gecko lizards, and green beans all have a part in revealing God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature. In fact, uh, in terms of the uh, space and the sky, Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2 say, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Just look at the heavens. Go out on a dark night. Go out on a bright, beautiful day. Go out on a cloudy day. Observe the heavens and say there is no God. One, one writer said this, God has stitched into the fabric of human mind his existence and power so that they are instinctively recognized when one views the created world. That is, unless you suppress it. It's there to be, it impacts us whether we want to or not. It has to be suppressed in order to be denied. People have clearly perceived God's eternal power. God's eternal power. It is evident that things don't make themselves and that power is needed to make things. The Gamalians, Frank and Michelle, would be surprised to learn that their new house that they're about to move into, God willing, made itself. And that the uh, builders and designers are just saying, hey, we, it's just doing it. We're just kind of guiding the process. It's just building it itself. Is that how it's happening, Frank? Hey, so that's proof that things need to be built and designed. And we see that in everything, nothing makes itself. Therefore, the maker had to exist before the things made. 
This is just basic. A, A plus B equals C. 1 plus 1 equals 2. So the maker had to be eternal because if there ever was nothing, now think about it, time to wake up. If there ever was absolutely nothing, there would only be nothing. There would always be nothing, right? If there was ever absolutely nothing, if there was no things and no God, then there would only always be nothing. There had to be something that was there in, in eternity. And because things will make themselves, it makes a lot more sense for there to have been a God who created and started everything. Because from nothing, nothing comes. So it is obvious that God was eternal and that he had great power to create the universe from nothing. By the way, they ran out, ran out of tape measure, but the universe is 92 billion light years big. So we have a big God to, to design that big of a universe. And uh, they lost count between 100 billion and 200 billion, but there's between 100 billion and 200 billion galaxies. So God is really, really big. People have clearly perceived God's divine nature. That is, it's obvious that God is not a man or an animal or a tree or just a part of creation or the same as creation. He is not a physical, visible being, though he is capable of revealing himself in visible form as he has done at times. He is not limited to the created order. These things are some of the truths that people have suppressed in unrighteousness. Ever since the creation of the world, people could know these things, but they suppressed them. And Paul makes the point here that, and people are without excuse. Paul says there is no excuse for not knowing these things. That means there's no innocent group of people somewhere who are not accountable for true knowledge of God. We love excuses, but this is not one of those areas of excuse that works. Now, some may say, but hasn't science proven the universe created itself? That life began purely by naturalistic processes and has evolved from primordial chicken soup, excuse me, primordial soup, by naturalistic evolution? I mean, isn't that what scientists believe? I came across an article with the title, How the Universe Made the Stuff That Made Us. The author writes, Each step from hydrogen to the other elements relies upon rare celestial and quantum processes. Did you catch that? It's kind of mumbo-jumbo. Each step from hydrogen to the other elements relies upon rare celestial and quantum processes. It is a parade of flukes. You're all the result of of a parade of flukes. And take that back to the Gamaliel's house. Would you like to hear at the end of the day that your house was a result of a parade of flukes? <laughs> they say, we are the universe made manifest. So that's one story. The story that I kind of like better is the eternally powerful God spoke the universe into existence and made the animals in us. What makes more sense? 
Science is a gift of God for seeking to understand and draw conclusions based upon things that can be tested and observed. It is not capable of testing and drawing infallible conclusions about things it cannot observe. So here are just a, um, a few very quick, brief points about science that make problems for Darwinism. I'm just going to highlight five points, and I think they're, they're on, on the screen. So the first point is in genetics, mutations cause harm and do not build complexity. Mutations cause harm and do not build complexity. Biologist Lynn Margulis said, new mutations don't create new species, they create offspring that are impaired. So I hate to break this to you X-Men fan, but fans, but there, there's no such thing as X-Men. It would be defective. Sorry. In biochemistry, so this is the second point, unguided and random processes cannot produce cellular complexity. As biochemist Franklin Harold admits, there are presently no detailed Darwinian accounts of the evolution of any biochemical or cellular system, only a variety of wishful speculations. So all the processes that go into the, to making a cell, they have to all be working at the same time. They can't have evolved gradually alongside one another. A third point is in paleontology, that's study of ancient fossils. The, the fossil record lacks intermediate fossils. The fossil record lacks intermediate fossils. There should be tons and tons of transitional forms, but strangely, the fossil record looks not at all like that. Um, a, a zoology textbook says most major groups of animals appear abruptly in the fossil record, fully formed and with no fossils yet discovered that form a transition from their parent group. A fourth point is um, biologists have failed to construct Darwin's tree of life. So trying to trace genetically the connections between the first single-celled organism to all the complexity that's there, the, the genetic dead ends are all over the place. They can't create that tree of life. And uh, fi finally, the fifth point is in chemistry, the chemical origin of life remains an unsolved mystery. The chemical origin of life remains an unsolved mystery. As evolutionary biologist Massimo Pig Pigliucci yeah, has said, we really don't have a clue how life originated on Earth by natural means. Now, some scientists find they must constantly suppress the suspicion that there is design in the universe. For example, Richard Dawkins. You know Rick? Richard Dawkins, great atheist. In his book, The Blind Watchmaker, writes, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. And then he goes on to say why that there's no design. It just looks that way. And Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of DNA, writes, Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see was not designed, but rather evolved. So don't let your eyes trick you. Things evolved, they weren't designed, is what he says. My point was to briefly give some examples to show that science has not conclusively proven naturalistic processes have caused the creation to be what it is. Darwinism is a faith commitment, as is creationism a faith commitment or intelligent design. It is, it is man in his unrighteousness, in my understanding from the scripture and from just normal reason and true science, that it's man in his unrighteousness suppressing the truth. 
Which authority do we believe? Naturalistic, speculative, not true science? Or God's revelation in His Word that tells us what we were supposed to have gotten? Without excuse. They're without excuse for verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So that was how they responded to what was obvious by creation. Since the fall, people have had a knowledge of God, not saving knowledge. That's Paul's whole point, that only uh, comes through the power of the gospel. Now, we can only be brought to saving knowledge of God through the gospel. But knowledge that he created things by his eternal power and that he is God, not part of creation, not a big man or an animal, that should be obvious. The problem was that they did not honor, or in other words, they did not glorify God as God or give thanks. If you know God, the only appropriate response is to glorify Him and to be thankful. To joyfully magnify and make much of Him and love Him and give thanks to Him. Failure to glorify God and give thanks to Him is the greatest sin in the universe. It's cosmic treason. It is the root of all sin. In fact, Paul will say in in chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this has devastating consequences. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The consequences of not glorifying God and not giving thanks to Him is becoming futile in one's thinking and having one's Foolish heart darkened. The meaning of life is not that there is no meaning. It is not that by random chance processes we exist and have evolved and hopefully get some good things in this life. The meaning of life is that we enjoy knowing God, glorifying God, loving God, giving thanks for His good provision of life and people and food and good things. Our hearts and minds were designed to enjoy and value the glory of God above all else and to be grateful. And so when we don't use our hearts and minds to glorify God, just like physically, if we don't use our hearts, our physical hearts, our physical bodies as as they're designed to be, if we abuse them and we divert and pervert them from the use that God designed them for, they, they break down. They become warped, so we become futile in our thinking. Futile means serving no useful purpose, completely ineffective. Our thoughts become worthless. In other words, our reasoning becomes nonsense for any eternal good. And our hearts descend into spiritual darkness. Imagine just rejecting all light and just living in darkness all the time. That's what happens to us spiritually when we don't glorify God and give Him thanks scary. A mind, a heart is a terrible thing to waste, terrible thing to abuse. But that is the human story throughout history up to the present day. And it's rooted in our rejection of God, our redefining and revising of God. And amazingly, in verse 22, we read that such people, us, apart from grace of God, claiming to be wise, they became fools. 
So tragically, in the futility of their thinking and in the darkness of their foolish hearts, those who don't glorify God and give Him thanks claim to be wise and believe they, they really are. They believe they are enlightened and that those who worship God are fools. They are hip. They are free thinkers, not bound by religious superstition. They are cool. Cool they may be, they may be but cool fools. And this doesn't mean that they're intellectually stupid, because a lot of them are brilliant and do a lot of really awesome things for society and for the world and some of their inventions and discoveries and arts and things they have to contribute. So it's, it's not saying that they, they don't do any good, relative good at all. But in rejecting God and refusing to glorify God as God, they are what the Bible calls a fool because you're missing the main purpose of your existence and the main source of your existence. And that's seen in what they trade God's glory for in verse 23. And they exchange the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God, for images. Since not glorifying God as God is the root of all sin, idolatry is the biggest, most fundamental expression of sin. This is because we don't stop being glory givers. We are hardwired to give glory to God. So we're going to spend that glory somewhere. We're going to trade it for something if we don't give glory to the true God. We are going to invest our built-in desire to give glory to God in something or someone or or some pursuit that becomes our God replacement. It's like G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton wrote, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. Anything but the true God. Paul calls it exchanging the glory of the immortal, incorruptible God for images of created things. This is what people do. They must and will do something with their inbuilt desire to give God glory. So they search on the glory exchange market. They go out to the glory exchange and Seek something to give glory to, put their glory into. We can hear this in Paul's, we can hear Paul's words echoed in God's indictment of Israel for its days of idolatry. In Psalm 106, 19 to 20, they, Israel, made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. That sounds so ridiculous to us, but we, we do it. Maybe not for an ox. We do it for other things. And Jeremiah 2.11, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. What is amazing and is evidence of the darkened understanding of refusing to glorify God as God is that we are getting a horrible value for our exchange. We are trading the most valuable treasure in the universe, the glory of the immortal God, for cheap images of mortal man and animals, whether images in our minds, Hearts on screen are projected by the culture. The culture says, hey, image is everything. Image of God, yes. But a false image, no. In Paul's day in the Roman Empire, there were all kinds of images of gods and goddesses and forms of humans, animals, and combinations thereof. Many families had household idols. In our foolishness, we think it is something to celebrate that we have so many versions of God. We, we think it's noble to worship God, whomever we conceive Him to be. Now, 
I'm glad not to live in a country where the government mandates what your religion must be, although the mandate to be to bow down to the secular state seems to be more and more of reality, but that's a different subject, or I won't take time on that subject. We think we are not idolaters because we don't worship statues of gods, whether in human or animal form, but even though worshiping statue forms of idols may seem more obvious expressions of idolatry, it isn't really that hard to see that we have exchanged God's glory for cheaper, corrupt replacements. But surely we haven't exchanged God's glory for the worship of animals, have we? Don't tell my cats that I'm talking this way because they're under the illusion that they are objects of our worship. An Argentine court made history when it granted an orangutan, Sandra, some legal rights that have traditionally been reserved for humans. And there's all kinds of things like that that are fairly ridiculous. And, and buying into the theory that we have evolved from animals exchanges the fact that we were created in God's image for our being merely an animal that lucked out and mutations passed on in the struggle for survival. And meanwhile, we, among other crimes against the image of God, abort 3,500 babies a day in this country, created in God's image. What we'll see in the next couple of weeks is that the consequences of rejecting God and not glorifying Him involves corruption in our desires and behavior. We become like what we worship. And we become less like God when we don't worship Him in truth. Said uh, the prophet Hosea, God spoke through him and said, they came and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing that they, they loved. So our, our lives display whether we are worshiping the true God, whether we love the true God, whether we glorify the true God, or have exchanged him for a substitute. Even if you have believed the gospel and trusted in Christ as your Savior, you must always guard your heart from exchanging God's glory for images and created things, from making even good things into God things. In one passage, Paul says that the only light that can bring us out of the darkness of idolatry, of not giving glory to God and not giving Him thanks and creating a substitute God, the only thing that can bring us out of the darkness of idolatry and into living to the, to the glory of God is the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He is the image of God. If you're going to worship an image, you worship him, because he reflects all that God is. So just um, think with me prayerfully as we open our hearts to God's searchlight. How can we identify replacements for the glory of God, which is anything that doesn't have Jesus Christ, God's Son, the revelation of God's glory and His gospel at the center? How can we identify if we're valuing anything else greater than Christ? Has someone or something besides Jesus taken title to your heart? Taking title to your heart's functional trust, focus, anything 
got your loyalty more to it than to Jesus, your service, your sense of fear and delight? What is operating in the place of Jesus Christ as your real functional salvation and Savior? What do you look to to justify yourself? To who or what do you look for to, for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you feel that you must have in order to be happy more than Christ? Must have to be fulfilled, must have to be significant. Only the gospel of Christ can save us from our unrighteous truth-suppressing, from our failure to glorify him and give him thanks from our exchanging God's glory for the images of created things, for anything other than God. Only the gospel can satisfy and give true joy. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God said, God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, let's trust God who powerfully saves us through the gospel. Let's delight ourselves in him. Let's fully own him. Let's continue to clear the clutter of other idols, other other glory sappers, things that we're looking to more than Jesus as our satisfaction and our joy and for our righteousness and for our life. Let's glorify him. Let's give thanks to him. Let's pray. Father, I can't imagine how this talk sounds to someone who just rejects you. I know that apart from your shining the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ into my dark heart, apart from you doing that, I would be a rejecter, a mocker, a scorner, a scoffer. I would be in darkness. I would be exchanging your glory for images of things. I'd be seeking life from things that were never meant to give life. I'd be valuing your gifts more than you, the giver. I would be worshiping the creation more than the creator. I would be hopelessly lost. But you sent your son, the image of your glory, the the revelation of your glory, mighty Savior, King, the one who laid down his life, who took on our human form, who became human for us so that he could die in our place and and be, be the sacrifice for our sins, turning away your righteous wrath. And in your great love for us, you sent him to do that. And your great power and your perfect righteous saving power, you raised him from the dead and and called us to faith in him, to trust in him, to treasure him. Father, I pray that no one leaves here today without trusting in Christ to save us, to save them from your righteous judgment. You've given us a stay of execution for millennia. And you've called us, Father. You've summoned us to the gospel and you graciously have revealed your great mercy and love for us in Jesus. 
only you could be this way and do things this way because only you are powerful enough to, only you have the depth of love to do it, only you have the depth of mercy to do it, only you have the depth of righteousness, the right to judge and to execute wrath and at the same time to provide a way that we don't have to suffer that fully and be delivered from it and have life and righteousness in Jesus. Oh God, Father, may that be our joy, our our encouragement, our hope. This day, in Christ we pray. Amen.